Hi, I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are authors, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some of the topics I explore are what the possible tensions between author, text, and audience, whose interpretations matter, what could be a miscitation, and how language is used and constructed. My guest today is Dari Aziz Abna. She's a graduate of Yale College and the University of Michigan Helen Zell Writers Program, where Drafts of American Fever won the Hopwood and Bush Prizes. She won the Bodley Head Financial Times Essay Prize in the London Magazine Short Story Competition and was long listed for the Sunday Times Audible Short Story Award. Her writing has also been featured in the New York Times, Al Jazeera, Rose and Kingdoms, and Dawn. Duri, thank you so much for agreeing to the interview. I want to begin by asking you how American Fever became the book that it is. Um, how did you conceive of the plot and characters and what changed or didn't during your writing process? Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you so much, Anne, for having me here. So American Fever, I started writing the book in 2018. And um, it got published this year. It was more or less finished by 2021. Of course, I mean, there's edits that keep going on throughout the process, but it took about three years. And like a lot of debut novels, it is based in a lot of autobiographical details. So for, for anyone listening in, the story is of a young Pakistani who moves from urban Pakistan to Oregon for an exchanger. And this was it was similar to an exchange program that I myself did. And I also went from the city that Hira, the protagonist, goes to to uh, rural Oregon. So it was something that like had happened in my life. And so, it, you know, it was it was in the back of my mind. And it was also obviously it was the first time that I left the country. Um, it was a very formative experience. But also because it had happened in 2008 and I started the novel in 2018, I thought that like it had been 10 years, which... I felt comfortable with that span of time in like allowing myself to fictionalize that experience. You said it took three years. So I guess this comes to my follow-up question, which is your title. I found it really striking because I thought of it as a double entendre of some sort. Um, obviously, there's some nationality attributed to a medical condition, but also right. the idea of being feverish. Sometimes I think of that as also an expression of excitement. Mm-hmm. And when we get to the first page, immediately we know that Hira has an illness coming into America. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you begin with her current state and tell the story backwards? Yeah. I'm curious if there's a critique or discussion of COVID lurking in the novel somewhere. Or if not, how has it been for you to talk about American fever during this era <laughs> of um, COVID? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, those are, those are. I think they're like two questions and they're they're both really excellent ones. In terms of like the structure of the novel, I'm glad you pointed that out because initially the novel was written without any of this like movement back and forth. So now it starts with a flash forward. And as you go through the novel, there are like tiny little flash forwards interspersed throughout the novel. And so initially, as I said, the story was told entirely chronologically. And the sort of like reveal that Hira has this illness was around the 75% mark of the book. I was doing that, obviously, to have this suspense and this, like, you know, thing that sh- the reader is waiting to find out at the- towards the end. But it it wasn't working because um, the illness that Hira has is obviously it's tuberculosis, which is a very 
like you you have to go isolate it's very contagious and so what hira has to do during that time after she's diagnosed with the illness is go sit in a room alone so it wasn't really working as this um like you know suspenseful plot point because it's not the kind of disease that like i don't know that like necessitates a ton of doctor visits it's a very inward and isolating disease so instead i decided that the tb could be used better as this like almost as a motif mm-hmm. for her experiences and for like this you know america versus pakistan and all these questions that she's facing with instead of as like a plot point and so that's why it's really no longer a plot point because it's revealed at the very beginning of the book mm-hmm. i had wakey wong on the podcast i think last year sometime last year during jonas okay when right. she was she was um talking about her book mm-hmm. and um she had a lot of covid kind of current covid discourse yeah, in yeah. the book so i always wonder what's the responsibility or maybe not responsibility is too strong a word how do writers now think of writing about the world when we're still going through covid yeah yeah no i think that's a great question especially because obviously as you said the book is about tuberculosis which is also a very contagious disease you have to go forward and keep it it's very very reminiscent obviously of covid and i i was doing my final edits before sending it out to publication um right around march 2020 so it's wow. felt very strange to be writing a book about quarantine and disease I mean, yeah i don't know i think it was for me it was um also just telling that you know where we were living through this massive pandemic that we think should have just completely realigned the entire world that it should have led to more responsible policy making that like people had so many hopes almost for this pandemic and then mm-hmm. um for me when i looked at tuberculosis and its history and the sort of just baffling fact that at one point in history it had killed one of eight Mm-hmm. people that ever lived like that's that's wild right and yet now it is no longer i mean if when you tell especially in the us when you talk about tuberculosis it's like a lot of people don't even know i mean people know of it as this like quaint disease that used to exist right. in the medieval times or something mm-hmm. um even though of course it's it's still a huge issue in uh, certain parts of the world but it it also felt like this strange lesson in our amnesia um yeah. that we all these like massive obviously traumatic events happen in history and then we kind of forget about them maybe as a follow up i think this is closer to the end when hera is i guess she would be bedridden and she was she was reading about the disease and she brings up literary people mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. um did they die from tb i can't yep, really yep. remember okay so it was keats austin orwell and thoreau and um and then she has this realization that people tend to think of it as a it remains as a problem in the third world and i wonder when you were writing it did you have to do research on tb and do people tend to historicize it as a disease yeah so i resisted the temptation to really go down the research hole because i didn't so uh, in terms of full disclosure so i I've, i've had the disease myself and so i knew the sort of general gist of it like the the drugs that you take and the mm-hmm. sort of like regimen that you follow and all of that and that's also very commonly available online because again at this point thankfully because there are so many drugs for it so many very effective drugs for it 
it's very well documented. Like the WHO has the whole pages on it and whatnot. So that part was easy to do in terms of like the more literary historicization. um, The one book that I read that was sort of important was Susan Sontag's Illness is Metaphor, I think is the one in which she talks a lot about TB and the sort of like the place that it held, especially in the European imagination. So I think that that's where some of those like that information or that about all the people who died of it. And I think she quotes Kafka's letters in there when he was going through or when he was quarantined in a sanatorium. So um, I think, yeah, I think that's the only one in terms of literary history that I read. Oh, I see. That's a really good book. Susan yeah. yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Thinking about the word American in your title, I wanted to ask you about this specific moment at the start of your book. So there's a scene in which Hira is discussing news with her brother Faisal uh, to warn about the perils of a, and I wrote in quotes, religiously monolithic country. There's like a sense of placemaking in in Hira's home home country. And then we contrast that kind of in rural Eugene. There's there was this I don't know I want to say humorous. I'm not sure if that was this was the app word. Hira was asked to present on Ayid Mubarak at Kelly's church, and she writes to Ali, her friend in New York, um, declaring that culture is a farce. What did you hope to convey through Hira's many complex moments in between cultures, contexts, and countries? And then I also want to ask about Zara. So how maybe Hira's confusion about, I don't know how you would say it, performing or being being othered in America? Um, when Hira visits Zara in New Jersey, she's surprised that her friend is wearing a headscarf because Zara didn't wear one in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the first question was about the culture as far as, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think that I'm very interested in how culture changes or deforms when it is transplanted from one place where it has, I mean, these are all things like, I mean, obviously organic is also a loaded term, but like, it has more organic roots as opposed to a place where there's no history of it. Uh, for instance, mm-hmm. like when Hira moves to Oregon, there is no history in that town of Oregon of like celebrating Eid or, you know, observing uh, Ramzan. And, and suddenly she is trying to do all these things and she's trying to keep it quote unquote organic, but, but there's no, no one else around it. Her is doing it. There's no community that is, participating in the same rituals that she is so then the question is like how much value do those rituals continue to have because ultimately i think for me one of the best ways of describing culture is just how different communities you know decided to resolve conflict and that's that's all that culture is um different people decided there were different ways of resolving conflict and sort of like increasing cohesion in a community and so when that community doesn't exist anymore, how do you, mm-hmm. what what value does the culture have anymore? Um, and especially when it's, I mean, Hira, also, Hira says that when she, right after, as you said, she she does this presentation at a church where she's trying to describe to all these people who have no context whatsoever what all these like sort of intricate rituals are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in that and how culture transplants in diaspora communities mm-hmm. and like how much does it mean anymore um and it's sort of related i guess um to zara who zara is in a different situation she's a friend of hira who is also on a similar exchange program but when she comes to the u.s she is placed with 
um, an Indian Muslim family mm-hmm. who are very similar to in a lot of ways. They're obviously like they're brown, they're Muslim as well. They speak Urdu. So she feels a lot more at home with them in a way that Hira doesn't. And Hira kind of, um, because she's she is, you know, a pretty judgmental and um, <laughs> doesn't really sometimes extremely unkind. She, she sort of holds that against Zara that, oh, she didn't really get the full experience or that she didn't even have to try with America because she just like basically came for something that was still so familiar to her. Um, and the headscarf thing I wanted to explore because so there are a few things. One is I think obviously post 9-11 a lot of Anglophone literature from Muslim countries has had to um, we have to be obviously careful about not feeding into certain stereotypes about Muslim communities. And yet I think it's it would be extremely unfair if we sort of just completely stop critiquing our own communities for things that we ourselves, like we have a personal relationship with those places and those customs and those, um, you know, rules and sort of expectations as well. And so it would be completely unfair to not grapple with that on the page if we feel like it just so, oh, it doesn't come across as whatever, like feeding into certain ideas. And so I, I wanted to explore this idea because I, I distinctly remember growing up and it was this huge, because in our school, certain girls would take on the scarf and others wouldn't. And it was also an all girls school like Hiraz. And so there would be this weird tension because it is a very, it is a very visible way of declaring your faith, right? And so like, there would be judgment on both sides for like, against the girls who did it and against the girls who didn't. And so, I don't know, I, I thought that was like a sort of interesting dynamic to explore. And especially, and it would be around this exact same time, like 15, 16, 17, when like young girls are trying to sort of find their place in the world and figure out how to be and figure out how to present themselves. You said you did an exchange program. Did you did you end up in Eugene or was it somewhere near that area? Yes, it was somewhere around there. It was also a very, very small town. The name of the town in the book is fictional, but it was somewhere around that area near Eugene um, and also a very, very small town. Yeah. I thought it was um, very interesting that you chose Eugene and not Portland, I think for obvious (laughs) political reasons, because I lived in Seattle when my partner was going through a PhD program Mm -hmm. and it's like Seattle versus the rest of Washington state. Because we we visited Oregon quite often. It was very familiar the way that you were describing that very (laughs) religious, very... mm, It just brought back a lot of memories about that kind of particular time period. And and we have been around the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's so funny is I didn't even know because I remember I went to Portland for a very quick um trip my my host family who's who's, by the way extremely different from the family represented in the book but my host mother she used to make leather handbags and so she'd like go on these road shows or whatever so once she took me with her and we went to portland and i i don't even know if portland was i mean it must have started being like portland the way it was (laughs) 2008 but i had no idea of its reputation as this like you know Mm -hmm. very sort of like whatever you want to call it this kind of strange place I had no idea and it was only when I I think it was after I came to college 2011 2012 is when mm-hmm. I like heard of the show Portlandia and like realized that yeah. Portland whole reputation and that did not line up in any way with my right. experience of Oregon and right. you're saying yeah I also wanted to ask about Kira I felt like 
it's been a while since I read a literary novel where the the protagonist is very young, like she's a mm-hmm. teenager. Mm-hmm. I wonder. So she's she's sixteen. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. I was just curious why you made her so young. Why are you narrating such a young protagonist in this very complex novel? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, I mean, that one thing did make it quite a hard sell, um, as you can imagine, because publishing, especially literary fiction, has a huge beef against very young protagonists. Yeah. And maybe for some, some for like legitimate reasons, it can be very hard to sort of, you know, not make them sound very adolescent and immature. And it kind of gets shunted into like the YA category, which yeah. is it's, it's the, the categorization is all kinds of stupid. But the reason why I wanted to keep her that young was because I think that that age and doing a high school exchange program. So basically, I didn't want her to be in high school because I think coming for a high school exchange program is very different from when you're coming or when you're traveling to another country for college. Because I think when you're going for college, it's it's just... Uh, I'm. I mean, you're still extremely unformed, but it's it's a completely different dynamic. You live around, you live with people your own age, you live with peers. Um, there's obviously great books about like immigrants coming for college as well, but I think it's a different thing. And what I wanted to really depict was someone coming here and living with an American family for a year and still being in that like very, um, that adolescent stage where you are, because a lot of the, the novel is about the question of whose fault it is or who is responsible for, for Hera's health, who is responsible for Hera's travel, who is responsible for like, you know, her well-being and whether it's her herself or um, the people around her, the adults around her, because she's at that age where that question is becoming blurry or the answer mm-hmm. is becoming blurry. Because once you're in college, the expectation obviously is that more or less you're responsible for like, Getting, yeah. making sure you're fed and making sure you're, you remain healthy and whatnot. So I, I, I thought that for the questions that I was asking, this age was a better, mm-hmm. better yeah. I only asked that question because uh, you had earlier I used the word judgmental to describe Kira. And I felt like she was judgmental, but I felt like I couldn't understand why she, I'm not sure if confused is the right word, but she had a lot of questions. As she yeah. was, and then her classmate, um, what was his name? Hamed? Is that? Yeah, yeah. Like so there are a lot of I think very pivotal moments where I'm I'm glad she wavered in and out. And I thought that was a really nice read to read how um she was trying to understand this kind of comparative politics, I guess, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of mentioned this when you were talking about um what does a headscarf represent post nine eleven? And uh, I think it's important to note that your book takes um, it's been 10 years since 9-11 yeah. and Obama's presidency is always mentioned. And then there's a lot of um, Islamophobic jokes as well. And so there's that kind of background setting in Eugene. And at the very end, you make a reference of Osama bin Laden's captivity as well. Mm-hmm. Why did you want to set your novel in this right. kind of 2011 placemaking so my own experience that I, when I went on the exchange program was 2008. And so I didn't want to sort of move too much from that because it was my first novel and I didn't want to sort of get bogged down in research. And I, I was worried that if I like, you know, moved the time period completely to like the late nineties, 
I would just have to, I would worry too much about getting the details right. Um, so I wanted to somewhat stick to that time frame. And then 2011, I mean, yeah, one of the reasons was because I did want to sort of bring in Bin Laden's captivity and then, you know, the the, the fact that he was killed. Um, uh, even though, as as I'm sure you know, it's not a huge, it's not really a huge plot point in the book, but it does serve as like sort of, an interesting thing to end on and I wanted to keep that and so one reason I think was also just being able to include that in the book and I know I'd want to also keep it in the Obama years just because that's the years that I did the program and I thought it was very interesting this dynamic Mm of uh, it was a very very conservative town so everyone really hated Obama there and then I remember coming in with my own baggage because this was also 2011-ish was also the time when there were a ton of drone strikes going on in Pakistan's western provinces and Afghanistan and so um, there was a huge anti-Obama sentiment in Pakistan but for very different reasons um, reasons that like people that I interacted with in in Oregon had absolutely no idea or really honestly did not care about so I thought I thought that was an interesting dynamic. I want to ask about Kelly the host mother so I made my partner read this book because I was just floored by it and I'm trying to get him to read more literature (laughs) and at the so this might be a spoiler so we know at the end Kira continues to talk to Kelly her Mm -hmm. host mom I didn't like Kelly I wasn't sure if I was supposed to like her I just really (laughs) couldn't stand Kelly yeah and um and I want to ask about Kelly and food because it, it comes kind of it's like a character trait, I feel. Yeah. The idea of food, at least, it comes up quite often. Um, right. I really love how you made Kelly, is she a manager at Trader Joe's? Is that right? Yeah. Man- yeah. Okay. Because, um, of course, we know like Trader Joe's has like some sort of social capital in Washington State and Oregon State. Mm-hmm. And you describe Kelly as really obsessed with this idea of her home or clothes smelling like food. And she always is like cautioning others to not have their clothes reek of food smells. And this one scene, Kelly asks Kira to make a Pakistani dish for Thanksgiving. And so like there's a cultural expectation, I suppose. And I want to maybe contrast and parallel this odd friction of food in America with Kira's own memories of her family's cook preparing food. Mm-hmm. So I know that there are many literary essays that focus on this idea of food in novels and this idea of the immigration and diaspora. But food and American fever seems to be telling a different story. Um, do you think that you're trying to tell a different story about food? And why did you portray Kelly as so obsessed with like smells? <laughs> yeah, I think um, so. that was definitely one of the first things. Not one of the first things, but that's something that I've noticed a lot. Like I, I distinctly remember being with an american um i think it was i don't know where it was but they like didn't want to put an apple in their bag for lunch because they said that then their bag would smell like an apple and i i just remember being so like i i i I didn't even respond to her because i i was like i'm clearly i'm missing something there is something here we are not having the same conversation there is something that is like going above my head and I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's it's so strange to me because I, I we grew up very, very differently. Food was never um, something that you were like trying to hide the smell of. And I, I mean, and the thing is, like, after a while, when you're living in a place, I, I, I would be 
and you know, I mean, now that I've been here in the US for 10, 12 years, I know that I do a lot of those same things. Like I waft my house out after I open the window <laughs> after I've made some food that's super fragrant. So I, I can understand it. Obviously, every place has its own context. And so within that, those things make sense. But again, a lot of the things that I was doing in this novel was like, we are very firmly in the perspective of this young, mm-hmm. very judgmental, like, um, extremely intelligent, but, you know, like stubborn girl who mm-hmm. has moved to this completely foreign place. And these are all her impressions. And so for her, it's just, it's, it's crazy. And then, then compounded with the fact that Kelly is also, as you said, like a very particular kind of person. And I think that the, the other question that you said that is related is what I'm trying to do with food in this novel. And I mean, of course, there's like so much great work on like food and food and diaspora and, you know, all of that. For me in this novel, food is inextricably tied to Hira's health. Um, Mm -hmm. And as we know, that suffers. And one of the big reasons why that suffers is because she's not being fed enough during this Mm -hmm. program. Um, Because TB is usually, even if you um, have the germs or like have the bacteria of it inside you, it really only acts up in very like old people or if you're sort of immunocompromised or if you're kind of are malnourished which Hera does and so for me even more than sort of like the flavors or this idea of like oh what is authentic or can you move a food across um different you know like can you transport food without losing any of its flavor and all those are really fun questions too and I think about them all the time but in this novel, the main question that food is asking is like, how does it happen that Hira comes to this country where which is like, you know, renowned for its abundance and like mm-hmm. excesses of food and, and she ends up being malnourished and with mm-hmm. a disease that she, she probably would not have faced in her home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, food is very related to health and nourishment in this book. I remember when... I just really like Kira. I like her shade a lot. <laughs> she was like, she likens food from Trader Joe's as being deficient in food. I remember that distinctly because mm-hmm. the family relies a lot on the ding the ding foods. Frozen foods, sorry. Yeah. Frozen yeah. foods. Yeah. So I really, I really enjoyed. And maybe this is a good way to tie into this question that I kept, I kept thinking about like the idea of this intersectional analysis that you were introducing in your novel. Um, so we, we understand class racialization and education very important in understanding Hira's observations in Eugene and how she might think of how she grew up differently in Pakistan because her parents are quite wealthy. They never cooked. Um, and her parents are really well educated. And, and I guess Kelly was my understanding that she's, she's working class, even though she, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she's working class coming into middle class. I think she, I think Kelly and Amy are better off than the people, the other people in the area. But the, generally, the town is pretty impoverished. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I wonder what what are you thinking through when you try to capture Hira's plight and her very nuanced observations between her two cultures? Yeah, yeah. That's that's a great question because I think I was very intentionally trying to. Because obviously there's this idea of like the poor immigrant coming to this land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that obviously that is that is the case for a lot of people. But in Hira's case, she is actually almost moving down the class ladder, if you yeah. will. She comes from uh, obviously 
a good amount of privilege in Pakistan and she moves to the US and suddenly she's in this community where people can't afford to go to doctors. People are getting like weekly handouts for food. And, um, and I think that, and this also does relate a lot to the food question, because as you said, one of the reasons why Hira is not used to cooking or taking care of herself is obviously because she's had help at home. And actually there's, there's this fantastic movie that I just, saw a couple of days ago that I've been thinking about so much since it's called the great Indian kitchen. Um, it's about, um, a young woman who's married into a family It's set in, it's set in a province in India. And it basically shows like all the minute details of her. The most of the film is just her cooking the different things that her family expects her to make and how they expect her to make everything by hand because it tastes better. And like, you know, you're supposed to the chutneys or whatever you're supposed to grind by hand and the clothes you're supposed to wash by hand because they don't get ruined that way and whatnot. And it's, I don't know, for me, all these questions are so tied up also to this idea of if you are, so for instance, like the frozen food thing that you bring up, um, what frozen food allows Kelly to do is, again, like, I mean, I know that you don't like her, but um, she, but you know, it allows her to be a working mother, um, mm-hmm. a single mother, and like, I know that okay, her daughter is gonna have something to like put into the oven and make do. And of course, it's not gonna taste remotely as good as what Hera's used to back home. But the thing that she was used to back home was created through the labor of someone else. Mm-hmm. And so these questions of like, okay, you've um, in you know more whatever you want to call it, like advanced industrial societies, you've obviously taken away a lot of that labor. You've automated it. That has taken away taste with it in a lot of ways when it comes to food. But perhaps it has also allowed people to be, I mean, I don't know, freer. I don't know. I don't know. These, yeah. uh, these, but these are things that I like think about when it comes mm-hmm. to food. As well. uh, I, I'm not sure. I think I sympathize with this conflicted relationship Kira has with Kelly. I just, I don't know. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I feel like I should like her because she's more understanding than her daughter, I think, because her daughter is very surly. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, also, like, the, the thing is, it doesn't matter, right? Because you write a book and then that book goes into the hands of a reader and then it, everything is between the book and the reader. So if you don't like the book, Kelly, that's, that is very much your prerogative. You are very much <laughs> allowed not like Kelly. Yeah, it just, Kelly reminded me so much of the white liberals in Seattle. I think that's why I was like, but maybe if a second reading might change my mind because I felt like if anyone had a good relationship with Kira, it would have been Kelly. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So because I know that you're doing the book tour and um, discussing your book, I wonder how the reception has been because it's so, it's very particular in this kind of moment in time where there's a lot of um, ongoing violence against Muslim populations and immigrant communities. I wonder what kind of um, questions have people been raising or how have their overall reception been to to American fever? Yeah, I think, I mean, overall, I think it's been, it's been really, really good. I think, obviously, it's a, again, it's a very self-selecting crowd that reads books in the first place. And then people that will, you know, pick up a book like this. So I haven't really met with like a lot of resistance. I think, obviously, what has been interesting to me is that there are certain people who will give 
Kelly more benefit of doubt versus Hira <laughs> and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, that's, that's great because that obviously speaks to different people's different experiences. Like for instance, you were able to transplant Kelly onto these other characters that you have come mm-hmm. across in your life yeah. and have certain like feelings. So I think but those things are very natural, I think, and there should happen with every book. I think it's, it, it's a good sign for me that different people have different sympathies uh, when they read the book because I, mm-hmm. I did try to do some justice to every character in the book. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, so far, there hasn't been anything in in terms of reception to the book that's like sort of, you know, been unpleasant. That's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Barry, I, maybe this is too soon to ask, but I'm curious to know if you have any current writing projects that you're working on or anything that you can share. Yeah, I will probably not share too too many details because there's <laughs> I think there's an ongoing superstition that like that yeah. mold the book. But yes, I am working on a second novel. It's it's going very very slowly because between finishing this book and its publication, I had two kids. Um, because and that more than anything tells you how slow things move in <laughs> publishing. So obviously, with two young kids, it's it's very very hard to find time to write. But mm-hmm. hopefully, at some point, there will be a second novel. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Drury. And I want to tell you again how much I love American Fever. I was really, I was just blown away by it. And it was one of my favorite current reads so far. Oh, thank you so so. much. I'm so happy to hear that. Yes. Well, thank you again. And I hope we keep in touch. And whenever your second book comes out, I hope hope to have you back on so that we can discuss it. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. Thank you so much for sitting here. Have a good day. You too. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.